You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, where we're going to be starting into Luke 9, 37 through 45. Raphael Santi, the great Italian artist and architect of the High Renaissance period, had a very bright, vivid, and detailed painting style. It was very popular at the time, and many of the pictures that he painted were of biblical scenes. Raphael died on his 37th birthday of a fever. His last painting, which many consider his best, is called The Transfiguration. It is the painting he died trying to complete, but never did, so one of his students had to finish it. The Transfiguration painting is unique in that it captures two different biblical scenes. Towards the top of the painting is Jesus, kind of lifted up, suspended in air and radiant glory. And right below him, to the right and to the left, are Elijah and Moses. Below them, on a mountaintop, are three sleepy disciples waking up to this radiant splendor above them. And then below the disciples in the lower half of the painting there is a group of people in chaos there is a father holding a demon possessed boy there are angry scribes asking the disciples questions there are people pleading and reaching out and one of the disciples is pointing towards the mountain As if to say, listen, Jesus isn't here. He's up on the mountain. And what's great about the painting is, in the one painting, he merged these two biblical events, the one that we looked at last week, the transfiguration, and the one we are going to start into this morning, the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And as we shall see, Raphael saw the great contrast between the two of the events, one which was on the mountain in glory, the other in the valley with the pain and sin and anguish of those below. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, we have four instances that Luke gives us which reveal that the disciples had a long way to go. They were struggling with a lot of things. In one way, this is very encouraging, although it's kind of a sad closure to his Galilean ministry. It's a good thing in that we can be comforted knowing that as messed up as the disciples were, God got them fixed up to do what they needed to do. And they became the pillars of the church. As a matter of fact, Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. So please follow along as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him and suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. 
And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a fit of convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now, from this portion of Luke, I want to point out four hindrances that will impede your walk with the Lord at best and at worst keep you from the kingdom of heaven altogether. And the first one is this. Don't be unbelieving. Look at verse 37. The text says, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Remember, we learned last week that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to pray. It must have been night because they were so sleepy, they fell asleep. Jesus, of course, continued to pray. And that's when he was transfigured. They woke up and saw it. This is the next day. They're coming down the mountain. The disciples now are with Jesus. And... The parallel text in Mark 9.14 tells us they came down, Jesus and the three disciples, and met up with the other nine disciples. And so now they're all together. But Mark also says that when they came down and they found the other disciples, that those nine disciples were engaged in an argument with the scribes who were experts in the scriptures. A large crowd had also gathered and were waiting for Jesus too. And here we see the great contrast that Raphael caught in his painting. Up on the mountain you have peace, quiet, tranquility, literally heaven on earth. And as they descend down into the valley, it's as if they're descending down into hell itself. Waiting is sin and unbelief and sickness and desperation and arguing and just general chaos. On the mountain, Jesus is the glorified Lord and King. Down below, for most, he's nothing more than a traveling magician, an entertainer, a philosopher, a curiosity, somebody you want to go try and see if you can see. To the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus was a threat. To others, Jesus was nothing more than a traveling doctor who could heal their sicknesses and diseases with a word if they could actually get close enough to him. Every time Jesus healed somebody, that person became, you know, the chapter head of the Jesus fan club in their little sector of the world told everybody they knew, and this only compounded the problem that early on in his ministry, there were five, ten, fifteen thousand people crowded to hear him. Now, who knows how many people there are? Huge multitude. Jesus is at the peak of his popularity, and so the masses have swelled to gigantic proportions. He is the traveling miracle man, the feeder of thousands, the great prophet and teacher And to some, even the Messiah. And so someone says, look, there he is. He's coming down the mountain. And he's with his disciples. And a large crowd, like just a big flock of goats, moves to intercept him. 
Mark, in his account, in Mark 9.14 says, When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Imagine how intimidating that would be. I mean, you're coming down the mountain. You've had this really great experience. You've seen the glories of the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're, you're walking with Jesus and, and you say, man, that was so incredible. I, I, I'm sorry we fell asleep, Lord, but man, it was just amazing. Jesus says, it's, we're going to have more like that. And all of a sudden you see this stampede. 15, 20,000 people and they're all running towards you and they all want something from you and imagine if you can this father with this boy or imagine that boy that demon possessed boy being your son imagine the sleepless nights you've gone through having to hear this your son scream and not be able to sleep and all the times he tried to throw himself into the fire and destroy himself and every moment you're having to watch him and just the desperation that you would go through and the suffering knowing that your son your only son had a demon in him and there was nothing you could do about it And so as the crowd begins to converge around Jesus, this man with this demon-possessed boy pushes his way through the crowd. And he didn't care to be polite. He didn't want to wait his turn. He was desperate. Meanwhile, the scribes are presenting their case against Jesus to the disciples. The boy's father, though, at this time presents... His case to Jesus about his boy. He first begins, if you look at verse 38, with the request, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, which means, look at him, see him suffering, and do something about it if you can. The desperate father then presents seven arguments, an attempt to persuade Jesus to cast the demon out of his boy. One, he is my only son. Two, a spirit seizes him. Three, my son... Um, suddenly screams four the spirit throws him into convulsions five he foams at the mouth six the spirit leaves him with difficulty and seven it mulls him whenever it does leave him mark adds three more symptoms in mark 9 17 through 19 and says the demon made the man's son eight mute so that he was unable to speak and nine it caused him to grind his teeth and ten it caused him to stiffen out and if you have any experience in medicine or you know what this is I mean, this is a classic case of, you know, grand mal epileptic seizures. But in this case, we're told they were caused by a demon inside this boy. What a pathetic and heart-wrenching situation. Just picture in your mind this huge crowd, this father who's pushed his way through, this boy who, who knows what he looks like. Raphael painted him with his eyes kind of rolling back in his head. And what medicine, what surgery, what herb or homopathic remedy can heal your boy? Nothing. Nothing will work except a miracle. You need a miracle. Now you may be out there when you you read texts like this, some people read texts like this and they think they're saying, well, Jack, come on now. This is all fascinating and, you know, you've got my attention and, you know, I'm, I'm glad to read about the demon possessed boy, but hey, you know, I don't deal with demon possessed people. 
at least not that I know of. Sometimes I wonder. Um, but you know, I, I don't know when someone's demon possessed, uh, and even if they were, you know, I don't have the power to cast out the demons. And so it just doesn't seem that relevant. Well, if this is what you're thinking, I, I just want to ask you some questions. We'll see if we can show you the relevance of the situation. Does the Bible say that all unbelievers are of their father, the devil, and are children of Satan? Yes. Does the Bible say that unbelievers are deceived by Satan? Yes. Does the Bible say that Satan is working in the sons of disobedience? Yes. Does the Bible say that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel? Yes. Does the Bible say that all unbelievers are held captive by Satan to do his will? Yes. Does the Bible say that it takes a miracle of God, salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, to save that person from their slavery to Satan? Yes. The world is full of people very much like this boy. Very much like this boy. I'm certain there are some here today who know in their heart they have never repented of their sins and given their life to Jesus Christ. They're in this category. Oh, they're not possessed. That is, they don't have one or more demons within them, totally controlling them from within, but... They're still ruled, governed, deceived, used by Satan to do his will. And do they need a miracle of God? Yes. They may not be foaming at the mouth and suffering from epileptic seizures, but they're suffering from something far worse. Unbelief. It's one thing to suffer a seizure and get thrown down, scratched up, or burnt in the fire. It's another thing to be unbelieving and die and be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That is a far worse situation. And it is only the miracle of God's grace through the preaching of the gospel that can set someone like this free. Charles Wesley's classic hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, has two stanzas in it which say it all. Jesus... The name that calms my fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood was shed for me. There are billions on the face of our planet right now. who need to be set free. There are the foulest who need to be made clean. Satan is working in them and they are sliding down a slippery slope into the mouth of hell and many of them don't even know it. They don't even know it. In the first century, the Holy Spirit gave a select few people miraculous gifts so that they could cast out demons and heal all manner of disease and sickness. We've talked about this in length. And we've learned before that when this happened, the reason it happened is because God was writing the New Testament. And so those miracles authenticated the messenger. But once the messenger had written out the New Testament, now the power is not in the miracles, but is in what? It's the word of God. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. Do not make the mistake of thinking that our text is nothing more than an event in history to be pondered and marveled at about something that must have been really significant back then. It is God's word and it is God's word for you and for every other person today and every other day. It gives us part of what we need for life and godliness. People like this boy in the text are enslaved to sin and Satan and they are all around you. They're in this room and they're in the world by the billions And God has given you the instrument to set them free, which is the gospel. And who, if they had the power to cast out demons, would deny this father's request? How could you do that? Nine of them were, uh, uh, the apostles were in the crowd. They were given authority to cast out demons. We know this from the beginning of Luke chapter 9. If you remember, he sent them out and they came back and said, hey, the demons were subject to us. They were, they were pretty psyched about it. Yeah, we had demons, man. They were submitting to us. So we know that they had the power. We know it was given to them. And we know they had success in casting out demons. Now, why didn't they help this desperate father? Well, we find out when we look at verse 40, where the father of the boy continues, I begged your disciples to cast it out. Did this father ask for help? Oh, yeah. He begged them. Imagine yourself standing there. You're one of the nine who's down below waiting. And some father comes to you and he's on on his knees. He's begging. Please, please help me. My son is demon possessed. Please cast him out. I know you can. I've heard stories that you're able to do this. Please help him. You can just see him there, miserable and desperate. Wouldn't you be moved with pity to help him? Wouldn't you have compassion in your heart and say, sir, no problem. And help the guy. I mean, it would cost you nothing, you know, freely receive, freely you should give, right? Well, then what happened? Why is the demon still in the boy? Why didn't they cast him out? Look at the end of verse 40 where the boy's father says, and they could not. It's not that they would not, but that they tried and could not. They could not. It wasn't working. The demon would not come out. They had no power of it. And you can just see them one by one commanding the demon to come out. You know, Matthew says to Bartholomew, son, step aside. Let me show you how it's done. I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of him. And nothing happens. And then Andrew says to Matthew, nice try, brother. Let me show you how I like to do it. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I adjure you by the most holy God, come out of him. Nothing happens. They can't do it. It's not working. And notice that the man says in verse 40, Not that I came to one of your disciples, but I begged your disciples, plural, to cast it out, but they, plural, could not. Man, they tried, the whole batch of them. They couldn't do it. 
Now we have learned before that when someone has a miraculous sign gift, when they do some sort of miracle, it is really God who does the miracle through them. They are just the agent or the tool that God uses. It is exactly like the miracle of salvation. You know, let's say you're, you're out and talking to some friend you've been praying for and you share the gospel with them. And the person repents and believes and their life is changed. And later on you tell your friend, yeah, I saved that guy. Is that what you say? No, people would go, I don't think so. Now you might say something like, well, I led that person to the Lord or I shared the gospel or God used me to you know, bring that person to Christ. But everybody knows that Christ saved the friend, not you. Not you. And there is no difference here. When these men were doing miracles, healing the sick and casting out demons, it was God's power working through them. And so you know that God's power didn't fail in the situation. It wasn't God's problem. In this instance, the disciples came face to face with failure. And like Sisyphus, who repeatedly rolled up the stone up the hill only to have it go back down in failure, they repeatedly tried to cast out the demon, but encountered failure. To make things worse, they had to deal with the, the scribes. I told you! I told you you couldn't do it! Jesus' name doesn't work! I told you! It's like, oh, leave us alone. And there was the desperate man with the desperate demon-possessed boy and everybody was frustrated and what do you do? But the question we must ask and answer is why? Why were they unable to cast the demon out of the boy? The Holy Spirit didn't fail. So there was another reason. Well, Jesus just happens to give us two reasons if you look at the text In verse 41, Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Now, I was reading uh, Harmony of the Gospels by Thomas and Gundry, and they were saying this is one of the clear places, maybe be the only place in the gospel where Jesus actually shows some, some exasperation. And, you know, you just wonder how he said it. When all this is going on, all this bickering is going on, and this arguing, and the man's pleading, and all. You wonder if Jesus said, you unbelieving and perverted generation! How long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to put up with you? Or whether he said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Either way. His comments are pretty aggressive, aren't they? How does it sound? How would you like to be labeled that? Yeah, what does Jesus think of you? Oh, I'm just unbelieving and perverted. (laughs) It's a slam, no matter how you say it. But did you see the first reason why his disciples were unable to cast out the demon? They were an unbelieving generation. There is a negative form of the word faith, and that's what's used here. Anti-faith, unbelieving, infidel, faithless, 
Jesus borrows words from Deuteronomy 32.5 where Moses in his song speaks of the rebellious Israelites as a perverse and crooked generation. But you need to ask yourself, who do these comments actually apply to? Do these, is he just, is he talking about the boy's father? Is he talking about the scribes? Is he talking about the disciples? Is he talking about the crowd? I mean, who's he talking about? Well, some would say, oh, well, it's, it's only the boy's father he's talking about. Oh, obviously the, the scribes too. And oh, he's only talking about the unbelievers in the crowd. They say, you know, the disciples, you know, they, they were already believing. They'd already left all to follow Jesus. He's not talking about them. Oh, really? Really? Did Jesus ever say to his disciples, O ye of little faith? You ever wonder who that character, O ye, is who lives in the town of little faith? In Matthew's account of this incident, we learn what what the problem was because they actually came to Jesus and in Matthew 17, 19, they come to Jesus and they ask him specifically, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And then in verse 20 of Matthew 17, Jesus says this, here's the reason, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Matthew makes it clear the disciples themselves were lacking faith. Or you could say they were possessing unbelief. And Jesus implies that though they had faith, it was smaller than a mustard seed. I'm telling you, that's little. I mean, mustard seeds are little. So smaller than mustard seed, I don't know. Mark adds in Mark 9, 29, that their lack of faith was also expressed by their failure to pray. Prayer, I remind you, is an act of faith. Why? Because when you pray, you have to, one, have faith that God exists. Two, that he hears your prayers. Three, that he has the power to do something about it. I mean, you know, you're, you're acting in faith the whole time. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. So the disciples are definitely included in the unbelieving generation. The scribes were also clearly included. The crowd was also included. But what about the boy's father? I mean, you might think, well, you know, he is, after all, coming to Jesus. He has, he must believe that Jesus can heal him. Well, Mark tells us in Mark 9.22 that the father said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can. You know what Jesus said in response to that? If you can. He says all things are possible to him who believes. Which reveals the man was doubting that Jesus could heal his son. Then in response to that the man said I do believe but help my unbelief. And then condemned himself as having a faith problem. Yeah I need help. Help my unbelief. So he doubted that Jesus could heal his son. He said he had faith, but he also had unbelief and he needed help with that. But you know what? The main thing was, is he was just wanting a miracle. He needed a miracle, but he wasn't seeking understanding. He wanted his boy healed, but he didn't want to step back and say, who is this guy? What is he doing here? What's going on? 
how do I escape the wrath of God to come? The, the big picture, the most important things, never were an issue to him. He just wanted his boy healed. That's why unbelief is the grotesque mother of all sins. It lurks in every heart. It's waiting to just deny the truth, fling it to the ground, and trample it underfoot. Unbelief is the universal plague of humanity, and everybody has it. And this side of glory, it's incurable. It is the root cause of all sin. Unbelief. Most of us, when we hear the term unbeliever, quickly think of the heathen, the God-hating atheist who shakes his fist at God and says, I don't believe in God. And I want to say, well, why are you talking to him? He doesn't exist. Who? God. <laughs> Thought he didn't exist. And that's certainly one kind of unbeliever. You know, you've got the person who just denies the Bible, denies God exists, you know, and they're out there in the world and we all know that. The world is full of men and women, businessmen, housewives, junior high, high school, college students who refuse to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, refuse to believe they lived a perfect life, that he was the son of God, that he died on the cross for his sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. They refuse to believe it. They will not believe Oh, one says, there are so many translations and transliterations of the Bible. How do I know that the Bible is true? And even if it is true, how do I know it's not corrupted? How can I trust in a book that's been copied so many times? My God is a God of chance. I believe in millions of years. Really? Go home, lock up your house. Wait a year, come back and see if it's better than it was. Wait a thousand years and see if your house did everything it did before and something else better. This would be nothing but a big pile of termite dust. But so the unbeliever atheist says, I have my own laws. I govern my own life. And when I die, I will transfer into nothingness. And the only thing that will be remaining of me is the memories of those, the minds of people who knew me. And the world is full of such people like that. They are like the boy in our text. They are blinded, captured, deceived by lies, inflicted with convulsions of unbelief, foaming at the mouth with scoffing and thrown down with pride. They are confident that their error is leading them into nothingness when really it is leading them to eternal torment. God put his law in their hearts that they would know for certain that he exists. God gave them a conscience so that... They would know he exists. God created the world. And it doesn't matter whether you look at the, the universe through the Hubble telescope and see the complexities and order of the universe, or whether you look an electron microscope and look at the molecular level of things, there is great engineering and design at all levels so that they were without excuse, every one of them, Paul says. But he also says that all men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They sear their own consciences with a branding iron and they will not believe. And so that is definitely one kind of unbeliever. There's another kind of unbeliever that I like to call the religious unbeliever. These are the many who call themselves Christians, but 
it's only a profession. It's only lip service. They never read their Bibles. They don't pray, and you know, unless there's a crisis, and then it's God bless America. They never go to church, or they rarely go to church. And if they do go to church, it's the exception rather than the rule. They are religious unbelievers. And they've decided to align themselves with Christianity for various reasons, because they like the morality, they like the higher ethics, they like the nice people that come out of the church, um, because they want to be seen in that light, because it's good for business, because it appeases their conscience, because it earns them respect, or whatever. But to the religious unbeliever who never really goes to church... Being a Christian is not any different than saying, I belong to this political party or I have this specific opinion. Something that never really changes the way they live. The Bible commands them to go to church and participate in corporate worship, but they do not. The Bible commands them to exercise their spiritual gifts in the context of local church, but they do not. Why? Because they can't. Why? Because they can't offer up any acceptable worship to God. Because they don't have any spiritual gifts. Because they're spiritually dead. That's why. Every time they pray is an abomination. Because the scriptures say the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. They cannot worship. And they cannot exercise their spiritual gifts. Because they don't have any. They're dead. And their trespasses and sins. Just dead. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey. I'm a member of the Sierra Fly Fishing Club. Really? Cool. So, I mean, what does it cost? What are the dues to sign up to the club? I don't know. I've never paid any dues. dues. I, I just belong. What kind of fly fishing do you do? You like, you know, dry fly or wet fly, streamers? I mean, you know, what kind of, oh, I don't fish. Oh. Yeah, I don't fish or, you know, I don't even have any fishing thingies or stuff or whatever you call it. <laughs> I just belong to the club. Or You say, well, how can this be? How, how can you belong to a club without signing up, without paying any dues? How can you call yourself a fly fisherman if you have no fly fishing gear and you never fish? Well, says the man... I'll get around to paying my dues someday, maybe, getting some gear. And most of all, though, I just like the thought of being a fly fisherman. So that's what I'm calling myself. And that's how most Christians are in America today. That's exactly how they are. Oh, I don't read the Bible. I don't go to church. I don't give. I don't serve. But I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You're a religious unbeliever. You've never repented of your sins. You've never placed your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do not have the blood that washes you from all of your sins. You never have worshipped God. You've never one moment walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. You sin and only sin always. You have no spiritual gear because you don't know Christ. And so you cannot serve him. And so, that's how it is. You ask them about the Bible? Oh yeah, I've got a Bible. Where? Well, it's on the bookshelf above my favorite chair. And it just kind of hangs there like a razor-sharp, double-edged sword suspended by a thread. 
And they could reach up there and grab it by the hilt. And it would do them great good. It would save their life. It would defend them. It would protect them. But they just ignore it as that thread goes ever weaker and judgment waits to fall on them. And maybe this describes you. Maybe this is one of the rare Sundays you actually happen to come to church and you're thinking to yourself right now, why did I come on this Sunday? (laughs) You know, I haven't been to church in months and now I show up and the preacher's jumping down my throat with the sword. Well, the reason you're here is because God wants you to be here. Because God, by his providence, has led you to this place so you could hear what his word has to say. So that you would know that you are not a Christian and you're not going to heaven by merely calling yourself a Christian. So that you would know that there is a way to heaven, but it's not the way you're going. That most of you probably fall into another category if you don't know the Lord. And that category is the religious unbeliever who's kind of involved in church. Here you are at church, you have denied yourself sleeping in, going to Home Depot. You could have done anything else, gone out to breakfast. But instead, you've sacrificed your whole Sunday morning to come here, sing songs, And hear me preach at you. And maybe you read your Bible fairly regularly and pray as a habit. Maybe you have even served in some ministry or are serving in some ministry. And maybe you're even a member of Calvary Bible Church. But you are another category of a religious unbeliever. And you know what? I fear for you the most. My heart goes out for you the most. I pray for you. The reason that my heart goes out to you the most is that God commands me to shepherd the flock of God among me. And if you come here regularly, I take that seriously. And I don't want to see you sit here week after week and die and go to hell. You come here, you hear me preach, I want you to know your blood is not on my head. I know it's not. The great shepherd has charged me in his word to shepherd you, to lead you to green pastures, to command you to repent and to believe. And yet you just haven't quite got around to that yet. Maybe someday. And I cannot bear to think of any one of you on judgment day, huddled with the goats, terrified, knowing judgment is coming, looking across the throne room of God almighty and making eye contact with me. And there is a reckoning coming, coming, and you know it, and I know it. And Jesus then looks at you and says, Did not my servant proclaim the gospel to you? Did he not warn you of hell? Did he not tempt you with the joys of heaven? Did he not show you the way to be saved, to call you to repentance and faith in my son? And what will you be able to reply to that? What could you say? Well, I didn't want you ruling over me. I I did not want to turn my back on my sins. 
I thought I would wait and spend all of my energy and all of my years serving sin, self, and Satan. And then after I was all used up, when I was 95% gone and in the grave, then I'd give my life to you and escape from the fire? Is that what you tell him? Will you say that, well, I didn't know you existed? I didn't know the Bible is completely true. Will you bring up transliterations and translations or natives in Africa? There will be nothing for you to say. You will be without excuse. And Christ will say, cast this stubborn, unrepentant sinner into a place that they have chosen for themselves. For I desired to save them. I called them to repentance, but they would not believe. They did not want my love. They did not want my grace. They did not want my free offer of salvation. So cut them down and throw them into the fire. Religious unbeliever, you need to tremble and you need to wake up. The wrath of God is coming. Christ is coming. You may die tomorrow. I just read a story of Whitfield's brother. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in England, came to America and preached, was part of the Great Awakening along with Jonathan Edwards, a companion of Charles Wesley. And Whitfield had an unbelieving brother who was wicked. He was wicked and vile. And he just sinned and plunged himself into every bit of ruin he could. And he came to hear his brother preach. And his brother preached to him and preached to him along with everybody else like he always did with ferocity. And he was moved. It finally struck home. He was on his way to hell. And so at a prayer house, he sat down with Lady Huntington And he said, I am lost. I am lost. And she said, I'm glad. He said, what do you mean? That's cruel. How could you say you're glad? I am a lost man. And she said, and I am so glad. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So that makes you savable. He broke down, gave his life to Christ, walked outside the house and collapsed dead. God has given you his word. It is in your hand. And if it's not, get a copy out of the pew in front of you. You can have it. God has sent me to tell you. That there is salvation in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That it is salvation that is free of total grace and mercy. That you cannot earn it. You don't need to do anything. You just cry out to God and he saves you. As John said in 1 John 1 verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of Blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is what God offers you, free salvation in Jesus Christ alone. As Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. 
We have to be born to get into this world to live in this world physically. Well, if you want to live in heaven spiritually, you got to be born of the spirit. It's just how it is. And this is the good news. God will do it. God will save you. God will transform you. But then you hear somebody at Jack, well, I'm too great of a sinner. Oh, Pastor Jack, if you only knew the sins I've committed, you'd faint. <laughs> well, listen, I'm not the Savior. I don't need to know your sins. A lot of people come to me and confess all their sins to me. Hey, listen, I'm not a priest. There is the high priest. Go to him. And think about this. You think your sin is too great? You know what you're saying? Listen, my sin is greater than Christ. Greater than Christ's sacrifice and Christ's love and Christ's mercy. No, it's not. Jesus died to save sinners. He died to save sinners. Great sinners. And get this. Before you were created, before the earth existed in eternity past, God already knew all the sins you would ever commit. And yet he still sent his son to die on the cross so that you, through faith in him, could have the free gift of eternal life. As Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But another objects, well, I would believe, but there are things I don't understand. I mean... I gotta have some answers first. How, where did evil come from? How does predestination work? It seems that science has proven the Bible is false. How can I believe in it? Nonsense. Friend, you're going about it all the wrong way. All the wrong way. This is what you're thinking. Okay. First, I come to God, I judge him, I judge his word. And once I am fully convinced that God exists and the Bible is true, then I will believe. That is backwards. The Bible says, no, you first believe so that you receive the Holy Spirit who then leads you into all truth. You don't. Get the facts, be fully convinced, so you believe. You believe, so you get the Holy Spirit, so you can understand the facts. That's why God says, repent and believe. So that you can receive the interpreter. The illumination of the Holy Spirit into your life. If you're going to wait around until you have all the mysteries of heaven solved, good luck. Because it'll never happen. Even when you are saved, you still don't know the answers to things. But what we do know is written in this word, the more sure word of God. And it teaches us that we must first believe that we might know. Still other people object, well, I fear for my soul because I cannot believe. I know I can't believe. I am so enslaved to certain sins. They have so plagued my life that there's been times in my life when I've tried to do the best I can to get my life kind of straightened out so I can become a Christian. No! Just as you are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for thee. 
You come so that God can change you. You don't have to be sanctified so you can be saved. You get saved so you can be sanctified. It's backwards again. So cry out to God. Use the same prayer as the boy's father. Lord, help my unbelief. Picture God. You're crying out to him. You're sincere in your heart. You know you're a sinner. You know you're going to be judged. You know you haven't given your life over to Christ. And you want to believe. So you come to him and say, Father, help me. I am an unbeliever. I, 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 I'm, I'm afraid I can't leave my sins. I can't do it. Now you think God's going to say, hey, listen, I sent my son to die for sinners, but not you, pal. I can't be helping you. You want help. Now you're asking for grace here and mercy. What do you think I am? Some sort of dispenser of grace? It's foolish. There's only one person he turns away, and that's the person who will not ask for help, who will not believe, who will not say, Lord, help my unbelief. He will never turn anyone away. He will not refuse you. He will save you, and he will change you for forevermore. And your sin is not greater than his grace. Well, Time has run out. This is the problem. We've only got through the first part of point one. (laughs) So Lord willing, we will try and come back next week and chisel into the tree a little more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we're able to learn here. Oh, the consequences of unbelief, how it is not only prevalent in atheists, but also religious people. And as we shall learn next week, even in Christians. Father, I pray that you would help anybody here who realizes that they are deserving your judgment, that they are not truly saved, that they've never been born again, that they've never received Christ and never become your child to walk in holiness after you. Father, please grant them the repentance they need. Break their hearts Help them to cry out for salvation. May they cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. And Father, we know you never turn a sinner away. You never reject them. You always receive them because you came to seek and save the lost. So Father, may that happen this morning in many hearts. For the rest of us, may we trust in you. Not be unbelieving, but believing. Because we know that you reward those who have faith and live by faith. So, Father, help us to be that way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.